Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. I am the music man. I come from far away. And I am Viggo the Carpathian. <laughs> well, he was a big ginger fella, to be fair. Exactly, so. yeah. <laughs> you didn't see that one coming. Uh, hello, Kevin. How are you? I am really good. How are you? Yeah, I'm good too, to be honest with you. Busy, 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 but uh, can't complain, I suppose. No, exactly. You know, it, the uh, relentless pace of life and all that malarkey. Indeed. Uh, yeah, welcome to Album Clash, everyone. We start... New Clash this week, and it is another one in our movies season. Um, It was my pick, and I chose for us to go through the soundtracks to The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, and The Godfather. Uh, What do you think the connections are, Kev? Um, I'm going to go with that they have both been on celluloid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that is factually correct. They've both got the in the title. (laughs) Uh, it is legendary film scores by Italian composers. Not the most direct of connections, but there you go. One of the reasons I, I picked, because I was always going to pick The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, because we've talked about Mar- Ennio Morricone mm-hmm. a, bit, a bit before. One of the reasons I picked The Godfather to go up against it wasn't just the fact that Nino Rose is also Italian. It's the fact that both those films, well, they're both part of famous trilogies, although... Uh, one part of one of the trilogies is somewhat lower in quality than the other two parts, let's just say. I like a fistful of dollars. <laughs> but both films, music is actually used quite sparingly throughout the film. I mean, they're two fucking long films for starters. Yeah, but the the use of the music is kind of like an additional actor in the film. It's directing yep. your emotions. Yep, that is exactly what I was going to say. Quite right. Uh, so yeah, that's why I picked those two. But before we start going through the good, the bad and the ugly, it's can't get you out of my head time. Kev, any shite? Yes. <laughs> okay, well, that was a very definitive yes. yes. Go on. I am not happy by this. <laughs> wow. So the guessing uh, daily intro game, Hurdle, has again fucked me over. This morning, in fact. And it was... Californication by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> Fuck you, Hurdle. Fuck you. Oh, God. Well, we have spoken. <laughs> Fuck off. I got it straight away. One second. Those four notes sent shivers down my spine. <laughs> One second, I got it in. <laughs> it's like, yes, I know that straight away. And it was lodged in my head all day. A lot of people that listen to Albert Clash were probably thinking, oh, I love the Chili Peppers. What's wrong with Californication? I mean, firstly, that song was not just heavy rotation on MTV2. when Exactly. A fucking, yeah, bleached. <laughs> so what I would also like to say as well, before you before you get into the, the reasons why actually the Chili Peppers are terrible. So, yeah, they, they had, it had like massive heavy rotation on MTV2. But if you then subsequently went anywhere in Europe, so the year after Californication came out, as Tim knows, I was on the trains in Europe and every fucking place, everywhere was playing Californication. I hate it. 
See me, I I loved the Chili Peppers, and I still think Blood Sugar Sex Magic is a is a really good album, and we'll probably do that one day on Album Clash. But I've seen them live twice, and honestly, they're one of the worst bands I've ever seen live. And there's just nothing there. They just go, they play their songs. They're so dull. Yeah, exactly. Incredibly dull. So, and then it, it wasn't just that Californication was saturated. From that point on, everything that they released, mm-hmm. no matter how anodyne and how replicant of their glory days it was was played over and over and over and over again and i just i cannot stand to listen to them anymore no i would agree with you that blood sugar sex magic is a good album and yeah i think we should do it at some point but very much a declining quality. Mm-hmm. We've we've discussed previously their cover of uh, Roller Coaster. Oh, Roller Coaster, yeah, but and Higher Ground. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> yeah, uh, my shite. Um, well, it, it's just that I heard it on the radio, and I hadn't heard it for years, and I realised, my God, this is shit. It's Steal My Sunshine by Len. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> Another example of terrible late 90s skater hip hop. Oh, oh, that's. That went. As soon as you said Steal My Sunshine, it went instantly into my brain. Like, (laughs) you know, you know, in uh, Star Trek 2 when they put like the little worm thing. (laughs) The brain parasites, yeah. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah, quite so. And the thing is, it wasn't just like I heard it whilst channel hopping, I was listening to Six Music. And it was Lauren Laverne's show. You know, she does the cloud-busting yeah. playlist. Every... I, th- I think Lauren Laverne's brilliant. That's an entirely different conversation. <laughs> but I'm like, what the fuck are you playing this for? This is awful. Anyway, there you go. Well, you know, as the opposite of Nobby McGee, the, we've said that occasionally a stop clock can be right. Occasionally, um, a well-timed clock goes out of sync. Yes, indeed. As it did then. Bad Lauren. Bad, Bad Lauren. Lauren <laughs> uh, all right, what about your good stuff? What are you going to add to our playlist? So I, I do have, after a couple of weeks of uh, going for some oldies but goodies, um, I do have something brand new. Okay, go on. So a band that I've um, had an on-off relationship with for a few years, Policia, really like some of their stuff, um, recently released um, some new material, new albums come out, and one of the singles off it is called Alive. And Tim, you will fucking love it. It's a lovely bit of moody electro. Oh, yeah, get it. With a female singer. Yeah. Like, you're going to be bang into it. Breathy? A little bit. Sound. <laughs> you, sound <laughs> you sounded like a real deviant then when you said that. <laughs> <laughs> I've not heard that, but I'm looking forward to hearing it. Uh, mine is old, so we're very much roles reversed this week. Mine is old. And it is actually a song that I have spoken about very glowingly before on Album Clash. So we're recording this... Well, less than two weeks after the tragic death of Taylor Hawkins, much-loved drummer from the Foo Fighters. And so, by way of my paying tribute to Taylor Hawkins, I would like to put Stacked Actors by Foo Fighters on our Can't Get You Out of My Head playlist. Lovely choice. Well, if you recall from our Battle Songs bonus episode, I talked about how I had seen Foo's at the Manchester Apollo a long, long time ago. And before they played Stacked Actors, there was a two-minute Dave Grohl, Taylor Hawkins drum-off, which is one of the greatest things I've ever seen live. So, yeah, in memory of that, I want to say you'll be sorely missed, Taylor, but you go on our playlist. Yeah, 
you know, you could have picked a load of, of, of different uh, Foo songs because mm. he was an amazing drummer. And if you have the opportunity to watch... So there was a BBC documentary series where they spoke to different musicians about um, about their instrument, and Stuart Copeland did the one on drumming. Oh, cool. Um, and he went to speak to Taylor Hawkins, and it's really interesting. It's, it's brilliant. Also, T- Tina Weymouth was on the one about bass, bass <laughs> playing. So, you know, yeah, all kinds of good stuff going Sound. on there. But, yeah, I, I can only um, echo Tim's sentiments and say he will be much missed and was one of the best drummers I've ever seen. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, with that, shall we go on to our top trumps round? I think we should. Okay, you won last time out with Rattle at Home, so you lead us off. Okay, so hmm, I will go with charts. Okay. US number seven. Ooh, I win. US number four for the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. Okay, so I take an early lead. Uh, well, I'm going for sales because uh, I'm quite confident about this one. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly sold three million copies worldwide. Okay, I have a bit of an issue here. Oh, go on. <laughs> I couldn't get any figures for the sales. Okay, so what are we saying? Uh, are we saying that's uh, null and void? Are we saying it's a win for me? What? Is there an equivalent of the pools panel? Yeah, it's me. I've won. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> Michael Owens on the pills panel now. Really? Apparently, yeah. Well, I suppose he doesn't have. He's not wasting time watching films and stuff. He's, not <laughs> well, he's only ever watched seven. <laughs> not the film seven. Seven <laughs> literal films. Do you think one of the films was uh, Soccer Dog? <laughs> I do now. <laughs> and I also, I, in my head, I've also decided it's um, MVP2, which is most vertical primate. <laughs> I've never heard of that. It's exactly what you think it is. I do think he also uh, particularly enjoys FX2, The Art of Illusion, starring Brian's Brown and Dennehy. I liked FX, uh, FX2. Fine. Okay. I have n- nothing to say to that. <laughs> to be fair, I haven't watched it for a long time. But, like, I liked it when I was 12. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was always on telly then. Yeah. Uh, right, anyway, back to the top. So I'm winning that. Sorry, I've, I've so I'm tuning up. Certifications, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. So it's um, the the game has been snowed off. <laughs> okay, right. Awards. Okay, I think this. I think this is a very live battle. Well, actually, I don't think it is. So all I've got is in 2008. The Good, the Bad and the Ugly was inducted to the Grammy Hall of Fame. That's it. That's all I've got. Okay. Um, so I very much win that. Okay, go on. Won uh, BAFTA for Best Film Score. Uh, right. Won a Golden Globe for Best Original sc- Score. But who wants a Golden Globe? It don't really count. <laughs> won a Grammy. Oh, a Grammy. Uh, best Original <laughs> Score in 1973. It also won... Uh, it was a nominee for um, an Academy Award in 1973 for Best Film Score. However, it was later disqualified uh, because Nina Rota had utilised one of the pieces of music in a previous film. Therefore, the submission was disqualified. Well, we'll talk about that next week. I thought you were going to say, is it because Nino Rota had yelled at Roman Polanski to uh, take his wife's name out of his mouth and then got up on stage and twatted him? <laughs> no, because you th- you'd think that someone um, accused of the crimes, similar to um, Roman Polanski, wouldn't be awarded with an Oscar later. I well, mean, you yeah. definitely think that. Well, and But you would be wrong. <laughs> so we are slightly after the event, but yeah. The hashtag Oscar's ugliest moment. I was like, mm, 
Okay. Or the, as, as someone else pointed out, fucking John Wayne. Yeah, I was about to say the John Wayne where he dragged he he dragged a woman off stage who was a Native American who was asking for, you know, their right, which... After heckling her. Anyway. I mean, who knew that... Yeah, who knew that John Wayne was a fucking terrible human being? Yes. <laughs> uh, right, okay, well, you have very much won awards. Um... Much like the soundtrack to The Godfather, so <laughs> off you go. So, uh, yes, I will go with lists. Yeah. Okay. 2005, the AFI did top 25 film scores, reached number five. Ooh, I'm not on that list. Uh, no placing Ooh. on that list. I've got, in 2019, Pitchfork put uh, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly at number five in their top 50 scores list. I don't have that one. I have The Guardian's top 50 soundtracks from 2007, assuming with it being 2007, it also had a, it was a picture um, <laughs> You thing. had to scroll through. Yeah, you had to scroll through, <laughs> get the yeah. more clicks. And it uh, reached number 23 on that. Oh, wow. Uh, so no placement on that list either. So I guess with you being on two lists and me being on only one, you have pulled it back to two two. Surprise! Yeah, it is a surprise. Okay, so two all. It all comes down to the scores. So scores, all music, yep. five out of five. Ditto. Soundtrack dot net, mm-hmm. five out of five. Ditto. It's a draw. <laughs> it is a draw. Wow, we've failed to find a winner. A disappointment for both sides, but it still keeps the it still keeps the uh, discussion alive. <laughs> Indeed, it does. <laughs> right there, you go. We've not had many draws, but um, no, yeah, I, I, I'm. I was really surprised at the recognition or the the lack of recognition for the good, the bad, and the ugly in some of those lists and, and on the awards front in particular. But hey, there you go. Yeah, I suppose, I suppose um, it grew in because it was quite a sort of underground thing it like gradually grew in sort of prominence later yeah there's a number of facets to it which we'll get into shortly but the spaghetti westerns as they were sort of quite disparagingly called were not looked upon with the same reverence that they are today and in fact all three of the dollars trilogy were not released in the states until 1967 so uh, it may have just been the case that it was not counted um, for award the award season because it had been released previously, mm-hmm. kind of thing. But yeah, there we go. Should we go on to the background for the good, the bad, and the ugly? I believe we should. Right. Okay. Good, because I'm looking forward to getting into this. As ever, I will say that we are going through the original album release, which is an 11 track release from 1966. There is a much later release, which is 21 tracks, uh, which has more music from the film. But we don't do that on Album Clash. We do the original release. Right, okay. So, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. The film was released on the 23rd of December 1966 by United Artists. It was, of course, directed by Sergio Leone and is the third and concluding part in the Dollars Stroke Man With No Name trilogy after Mm -hmm. A Fistful of Dollars and For A Few Dollars More. As I just mentioned, uh, they were only initially released in Europe and were all three of them were released in the US in 1967. The soundtrack was released on EMI uh, in Europe and Capital in the US on the 29th of December 1966, composed and produced, of course, by the legendary Ennio Morricone. 
So I don't have loads on background, but I've got a, a couple of things. So Morricone had composed the score to the first two parts in the Dollars trilogy as well. And basically he knew Sergio Leone from school. So he said in an interview with The Guardian in 2007 of Sergio Leone, I went to school with him, but only for one year, so I knew him a little bit. When he asked me to write the music for his first film, some of the music was written before the film, which is unusual. Leone's films were made like that because he wanted the music to be an important part of it, and he often kept the scenes longer simply because he didn't want the music to end. That's why the films are so slow, because of the music, which goes back to one of the things you were saying about the soundtracks of both of these films. So he didn't have a huge budget to record the soundtrack, uh, so he didn't have access to a full orchestra, so to sort of compensate and to, to make the arrangements sound bigger, Morricone used effects like whip cracks and gunshots, yodeling, whistling, etc. to really evoke the period in which the films were set. And there's quite a stark difference between these soundtracks and the sorts of music you were getting with your John Wayne films, your um, Gary Cooper and Grace Kelly type things, you know what I mean? Yeah, the, so particularly to an american audience it wasn't the sort of grand vista soundtrack no. it was it was a bit more dirtier a bit i yeah. suppose a bit grittier as well a bit more guttural a bit grittier as you say much like the films themselves it has to be said mm-hmm. okay so just describing his approach to actually composing film scores Ennio Morricone said in an interview with magnet magazine in 2016 From the very beginning of the process, when I start writing a composition for a film, I write all music as independent and standalone. If the music is audacious and powerful enough for a film, it must also have a life free from its images. I compose a piece of music that is interesting to me, that is relevant, contemporary and challenging, because I don't wish to bore my audience. Or me, for that matter. I want to feed my audience music that has dignity. And so for this film... A lot of the music was planned and recorded before the film was shot. And actually, Sergio Leone took direction from Ennio Morricone and the scenes were planned out to map to the music. And certainly, as you get to some of the more famous pieces towards the end of the film, you can very much see that, that there is a mm-hmm. almost a choreography in the way that the cinematography is shot to the music. Yeah, and, you know, there's talk of... Uh... Leone sort of coordinated the camera movements and they played the music on set so it all mm-hmm. kind of came together like and as we will get into when you talk about the denouement of the film and everything the that's very you, that's very evident yes it is very evident okay that is all i have on background though how about you anything else no, like I think the only thing that I really wanted to sort of bring up, and I suppose we'll, we will get into it a bit in a bit more detail, is just how clever it is to have a motif for each for the three yeah. main characters yeah, uh, musically. Yeah, yeah uh, we are. I'll come on to that in a second. But uh, okay. yes, you're right. Okay, how did you discover the album then, Kev? So it was. It definitely wasn't when it first came out because I wasn't born. <laughs> and it, so my dad my dad loved a Western and I grew up with the Dollars trilogy, absolutely adored it. And I always liked the soundtrack um, and I'd always liked Morricone's stuff. So like things like um, Two Mules for Sister Sarah as well, which is a belting soundtrack as, as well. So it was 
sort of in my early 20s when some things became much more readily available via Mm -hmm. internet (laughs) (laughs) that I procured a copy. (laughs) So very similar for me. I first saw this film when I was a kid and I loved it. And I still do. I fucking love this film, by the way. It's brilliant. Yeah, we we both we both yeah. have watched this film together. We yeah, it's it's a cracker. It is, uh, and yeah, I uh, similar to you um, acquired a copy through the internet. Yeah, it would have been about twenty years ago now, and just fell in love with the album as a whole as a result. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk about some artwork then. Yeah, I mean, I suppose there's not really a huge amount to say that it's the cover, it's the, it's um, the poster, the film cover. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's a painting of our three main characters, Angel Eyes, Tuco, and Blondie. They're set against a really sort of arid yellow sunset type hue, and then below that, you've got depictions of the of the Civil War f- scenes that you see within the film. So for me, one of the most interesting aspects of the whole trilogy and this film in particular is the way that it's all set against that backdrop of the Civil War, how it depicts those battle scenes and how mm-hmm. these, I'm going to say at best, amoral men operate against that backdrop of the Civil War. You, again, completely different to how Westerns had been shot previously. Yeah, the the Western had always had a very simple kind of narrative. These are your good guys. These are your bad guys. Yeah. The, and there's no there's no complexity to it. The beauty of the of this film, alongside the you know the other ones in the in the Dollars trilogy, is that all the men have flaws to them. That then there's elements of anti-hero and hero. Yes. In in virtually all of them. Absolutely right. Agreed. Uh, the only thing I'll say about artwork: first class font game. Oh, beautiful font. Um. It's it's a lovely, lovely font, <laughs> and a good coloured font as well. Yeah, absolutely right. I agree. I agree. Uh, but yeah, that's all I've got about artwork. Yeah, I've got nothing to add. Okay, so shall we race on to talking about the actual music? Crack on. Right. So we start with the main title theme called "The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly," and is this alongside Jaws perhaps the most iconic piece of film score? ever recorded so if if we were playing the the hurdle game you would not need very long of the opening to this nope to get to know instantly you'd get it as soon as you heard the doom 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 yeah i don't think you even need the the voice i think i think just that that slow intro you know exactly much like as you say with george where you just need like and then you get it straight away so my kids know this and i was as part of my research for this, I was just, I said, oh, I'm going to do an experiment just to test my theory there. And I was talking to my son and I just went, ah, and he immediately goes, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm going to come back to what you said a few minutes ago now. The real insight you get to Sergio Leone and Ennio Morricone's vision here. Uh, so that main motif is meant to emulate the howl of, of a coyote. But like you said, each of our three characters, Clint Eastwood's Blondie, Angel Eyes, played by Lee Van Cleef, and mm-hmm. Eli Wallach's Tuco, the motif for each of them is played with a different instrument or, or, or with different music. So for Clint Eastwood, it's a flute. For Lee Van Cleef, it's an ocarina. 
And for Eli Wallach, it's wailing voices. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And each one represents that character. The flute is the good. The ocarina is the bad. And the wailing is the ugly. Although, completely aside from music, I have always had an issue with the name of this film and the way the opening part of the first act plays out. Because you first come across Tuco, the ugly... Then you're introduced to Angel Eyes, the bad. Then finally, you are reacquainted with our hero, Blondie, the good. So it should, in fact, be called the ugly, the bad, and the good. It's the wrong way around. (laughs) Maybe it's like one of those uh, translation things where... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like they've, they've translated it from, Translate. yeah yeah and they put it in the wrong order yeah that's i never thought of that it's a good show <laughs> okay so uh morico now i don't have many quotes um, this week you'll be glad to know but just on this morricone is quoted in resistor mag as saying with the good the bad and the ugly i used animal sounds as you say the coyote sounds so the sound of the animal became the main theme of the movie it's fucking brilliant it is brilliant like and the the thing that you can definitely say about it is the way it builds and the the atmosphere that it has in it it's it's incredibly musical it's incredibly tuneful but it's it's also got loads of space for tension to build it's it's such a clever clever piece of music yeah it gives you the the grandness of the of the west while still giving you that un, those unsettling towns that some something ain't right you know yeah it, you've exactly it's got everything you want in a Mar- in a morricone score this that drama as you said the tension the grand vista sound just the the sheer epic scale of to what it builds to from a really pared down start you know you've got the guitar oh god that guitar wow yeah. the drums the harmonica, the wailing vocals, as you've said, and then you got that trumpet right at the end. Yeah. Oh, it's glorious. I, I am. I am in. So it, it kind of tells the story of the film, like it in does, the yeah. in the opening. The yep. the drums are like the the military the military mm-hmm. bits, and obviously with the with the trumpet as well, which that mm-hmm. that theme comes back yes, in. You've does. got the desert coyote uh, vocals. You have got the the chase of the guitar. Like there's all kinds of things that sort of preludes to the to the film really yeah absolutely right as i said it's iconic it's synonymous with westerns it's synonymous with clint eastwood it's synonymous with all of that stuff it's great well put put it this way i like as i said i grew up and my dad loved a loved a western and he always had a john wayne film on because like for some reason John when we were kids, like John Wayne films were on all the fucking time. Saturday lunchtime after Footy Focus had finished. And I could not tell you the theme tune to any one of those films. No. And I'm sure you know, I'm sure very good musicians worked on them. But I could tell you this. And as you said, like with, with your lad, like instantly you didn't you only needed to say a little bit of it and yep. you knew exactly what it was. Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. Okay, so in nineteen sixty seven, a cover by Hugo Montenegro was a smash hit globally it got to number one in the uk and number two in the us uh, the only thing that kept it off number one in the us was another song from a film soundtrack that being simon and garfunkel's mrs robinson from the graduate wow i've never heard it um but apparently it's played on a moog synthesizer so yeah i i'm i'm wondering whether you've come across this i have it's quite good <laughs> i bet you're banging <laughs> 
There are 29 other covers. Oh, dear God. Well, I'm only going to talk about two, one of which being a frankly baffling 1988 version by Erasure. <laughs> yep. Okay, I did not see Erasure coming in. Here. No, it, it, and it's just... Well, imagine a Vince Clark version of The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, because that's what it is. <laughs> Okay, that that's fucking wild. And then the other one is, well, it's the obvious one, isn't it? I mean, who has obviously covered the theme to The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, considering what we've just talked about with the guitar? <laughs> is it Hank Marvin? Of course it's Hank Marvin! <laughs> oh, doing his shit step over thing. Yeah. Uh, it's great. Shall we move on? Yeah. Okay, so Sundown is the next piece of music we hear. So the thing I like about the soundtrack is that actually it follows the story of the film as well. Mm -hmm. So we hear this the first time we're introduced to Lee Van Cleef's Angel Eyes. So he turns up at the old fellow's ranch uh, and after the old fella tells him about Bill Carson, he kills him. And he kills his farmhand as well, the, the lad, doesn't he? What I've said about this is it starts off with that classical guitar part Mm-hmm. by Bruno Battisti De Mario, apparently. And it's just breathtaking, the start. It's, it, the tune starts off like the scene. It's gentle. It's soothing. It is a vista of sunset in the desert, in the country. But then it switches from a major to a minor key, and there's a darkness that creeps into it. It just puts you off kilter, and yeah, it's, you suddenly realise some bad shit's about to go down here. This guy is a wrong'un. Yeah, and... That, like, the orchestral backing, it's a creeping fear, a creeping anxiety that kind of comes comes into the song. And, as you say, it perfectly fits the scene. And I, f- I get the feeling we're going to be saying that an awful lot. Yeah, he wasn't bad at um, the old uh, soundtrack game. <laughs> no. No, he wasn't. Yeah, I like this a lot. It's a, it's a fairly simple motif, un- unlike some of the other things we hear this one doesn't come back in again at any point in the soundtrack but i think as an introduction or again a reintroduction to that angelized character because he also obviously appears in uh, uh, for a few dollars more it's really really effective because you straight away know mm. yeah this man is our villain he is a wrong one. he is he is a bad egg <laughs> <laughs> shall we move on to the strong Yes, let's do it. So Angel Eyes is now searching for Bill Carson to find where the gold is. And he comes across a Confederate fort that has been destroyed by Unionists. And <laughs> not Northern Irish ones, so, Kev. Supposed to say. <laughs> destroyed by Yankees, better? Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, and we find it's been destroyed by the Yankees. And it's a really, really beautiful, well, it's a trumpet-led elegy. Oh, lovely. Lovely bit of phrasing there. Thank you very much. There's so much pathos to it. It evokes the tragedy of the fallen. And you alluded to this a a bit ago when we were going through the main theme. The sort of little military motifs interspersed with that main elegy are really quite clever. And, you know, they, they... Emphasise, if you like, the, the folly of the whole situation, that, you know, the, the the futility of warfare, so to speak. Yeah, the it, and obviously it's not the first time that, it's the first time we encounter the military motif, but it, 
it's repeated throughout the film in very important important scenes. And I think the only thing I can really add to the to the beautifully and um, eloquent way that you've sort of described it is that I found that the brass has a real poignancy to yeah. it. That, as you say, it kind of it's that lament. It's that the futility of war, the yeah. the sense of waste and pointlessness. Absolutely. Uh, well, and that is definitely something that we come back to in a few songs' time. But yeah, 100%. That, that said, I'm ready to move on straight away. Yeah. Listeners are going to be loving this episode. We will be absolutely <laughs> flying through yeah, these. Exactly. They'll be absolutely... Lo- Do more soundtrack albums. <laughs> we could blast through them whilst we're on our way to work instead of taking a week to fucking listen to them. <laughs> Listen, you don't have to fucking edit this thing. I do, all right? Imagine how much shit's cut out. <laughs> shit being the operative word. <laughs> the Desert is the next track. Tuco has captured Blondie and he's forcing him to, to walk through the desert while Tuco rides alongside on a horse. And it's quite a long one, this. But that's because it just plays throughout the whole scene, and it's re- it's quite a brutal scene actually. There's no mm-hmm. there's no violence to it, but it really you feel the growing desperation and growing severity of of Blondie's plight, if you like, that he's walking through the searing heat with no water, with no shade. You see his skin becomes more and more scabbed and and burnt. He gets weaker and weaker. And what I really like is that as he fades, if you like, through through that scene, the music does the opposite. The music builds the relentlessness of the strings, build and build and build, until at the end of the scene, he's near death, but the music is at an absolute crescendo. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's the the strings kind of play the play the role of the sun, really. Yes. In the at the start, it's quite it's quite low in the mix. It's it's quite quiet because it's not affecting him that badly. But as you say, as you get towards the end of that scene, he's overwhelmed by the by the sun, by its its ferocity, by its heat, by mm-hmm. the impact that it's had had on him throughout that. Yeah, and the the strings are almost unbearable because because of like play similar to the sun, and it it works really well. Sort of that sparse opening, and then it's got a sinister build to it. And again, building in uh, themes that are used later. It's got it's got that feeling of being lost and wandering in the in the desert. It's it's a it's a brilliant piece of music. It is a brilliant piece of music. Uh, yeah, I agree. It, it again, it evokes that sort of endless torture that he's going through that there's there's no respite anywhere from what's going on there's no sign of an end to it it's um well again as we've said several times already it is a perfect score for the scene um Mm -hmm. you know it really does heighten that 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 tension and that uh, sense of desperation as i say very much so okay the carriage of the spirits is next so it's a reprise of the tune we heard in the strong in the film, so Blondie is at death's door. Tuco's about to shoot him when all of a sudden he sees a riderless carriage approach them. Uh, inside the carriage are several dead or dying Confederate soldiers, including Bill Carson, who tells Tuco of the $200,000 buried in a graveyard. Uh, he then says, I'll tell you the name of the grave, but I need water first. 
off Tuco goes to find water. By the time he comes back, we see that Bill Carson has died. But Blondie is there going, you know the graveyard, I know the grave, so let's go. And therefore, Clint Eastwood's life is spared. Yeah, and we've got the use of the military motif, which, um, you know, obviously there are Confederate soldiers in it. And then you could argue that the sort of soaring vocals in it are sort of reminiscent of the, I don't know, the spirit of, Absolutely. of, the, of the dead soldiers, you know. I, I, I have the angelic vocals. So it's Ed Adele also, who we will come back to later on. Oh, Christ, yeah. Um, <laughs> and yeah, that's exactly what I've said. It, it, is, it is the spirits of the fallen. You could also look upon it as being... The angels calling Blondie, who, as we said before, is at is at death's door. So there's there's a lot to it again, mm-hmm. which which fits really well with the scene. Yeah, I mean, you could also view it as the the reason there is sort of an angelic sound is because it's his salvation has come. Very good. Yeah, we are getting proper knobby, Chris. Cowell now, I know. <laughs> Mark Kermode ain't got shit on us. <laughs> See, they've entered the fucking podcast game. I mean, to be fair, they were they were in it anyway. Oh, shut up! <laughs> <laughs> but yes, no, you, you're absolutely right. You talked about the military motifs with the the bugle calls. They're a bit more prominent here because of what you see. Mm-hmm. There's also a really what I've said is a really brooding baseline underneath it all that tells you all is not well. That tells you once they stop this carriage and and find out what's inside it, it's going to be quite it's going to be quite haunting actually and quite mm-hmm. shocking i suppose like the growing so just just thinking about it now the, the growing sound of the military motif is the kind of sign that no matter how much you want to you can't get away from the civil war yeah well as we'll go on to momentarily in fact indeed i, I do like the way this ends you get the coyote call again and that chimes with the fact that Blondie's life has been spared. It is his salvation because he knows where the money is buried uh, and it's like you know, he lives to fight another day kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, shall we go on to Marcia? I think we should. Okay, uh, it's Italian for March and in the film, as Blondie and Tuco begin their journey to the cemetery where the gold is buried, they are intercepted by the uh, Yankee cavalry who take them captive and lead them to a prison camp. So the question I have is, how much more Morricone could this piece of music be? And the answer is none. (laughs) None more Morricone. None more Morricone. I mean, it's got classic Morricone gob iron. (laughs) It does. And classic Morricone whistling as well. Exactly. Although, although I can't help but think of... Hi ho, hi ho! It's off to work we go when the whistling comes in. <laughs> I think the way uh, the piccolo and strings uh, sort of come in as well. The yeah, it's yes, it's it's beautiful. Yeah, like you said, the first half is like a a, a marching tune. I like the way the whistling builds in intensity as well as as more people join in. Like you're seeing the cavalry come over the hill and there's more and more of them mm-hmm. doing it. I think that's a really subtle but really clever touch. But yeah, then just halfway through, it just becomes this really sombre ode to, again, an ode to the fallen almost. You know, we so we arrive at the prison camp. We see the conditions that 
the captured and the captors alike are, are, are living in. And yeah, it's it's a really moving piece of music in the end. Yeah. And then once again, right at the end, you've got that main refrain, the coyote howl, because we now learn that Angel Eyes is masquerading as a captain and has basically taken charge of the prison camp with hilarious consequences. <laughs> yeah, because the next song that we'll go into is... Uh, God. Oh, it's, a, oh, it's lovely. Brutal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, have you got anything else to say on Mar- Marcia? I do not. So yeah, then the story of a soldier is the next. So it's the only track on the soundtrack with lyrics. They were written by Tommy Connor, Dezo's lad. <laughs> oh, bastard! Was that what you were going to say? Yeah. <laughs> it's the only diegetic piece on the soundtrack, which means it's the only piece in which the music is heard by the characters as well as mm-hmm. by the audience. And that's because the song is performed by a band of Confederate soldiers and they are being forced to play it by their captors to drown out the sound of prisoners, and in this case, Tuco, being tortured by the Unionists. And again, in this case, Angel Eyes in particular. So, and there's a part in it, in the scene, we're talking more about the film than the fucking music here, but they go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Where the guy playing the fiddle breaks down in tears and stops playing, but the, the guard tells him to keep playing it with feeling. And it's just heart-wrenching because these broken young men, they know exactly what's happening because they've all experienced it themselves, but they're just completely powerless to do anything about it. So they're they're doing it to drown out the sound of themselves as much as anything else. They don't want to hear mm-hmm. what's going on, so they're going to play the song. Oh, God, it's... Heartbreaking. It's, every time. It's really hard to watch this scene. It is, and like this, the song itself is a proper kind of lament as yes, well. Yes, and and so it adds to the kind of tragedy of of everything that's going on. That they have, they're being forced to sing this yep. song to drown out the sound of torture of their comrades, kind of thing. It's yeah, it's horrible, really. It is horrible. So the vocals are, are really moving, as you say, and are really poignant. But, well, you just talked about the harmonica on the previous track. The harmonica and the violin in tandem here are everything. They they pierce right to the heart of the grief that this song and that this scene conveys. Oh, it's it's difficult to watch, but I, it's a really, really, really lovely piece of music. Yeah, it is. So we move on to Marcia Without Hope. Literally, March Without Hope. So... We shoot to quite a bit further forward in the film by this point. So Blondie and Tuco have escaped from the prison camp. Well, in fact, uh, Blondie and Angel Eyes have gone together to to get the gold. But Blondie realises that he's been double-crossed. So you've got Angel Eyes' men who are stalking them. There's a bit of a showdown. Blondie and Tuco kill five of Angel Eyes' men. After that, they are once again captured by Union soldiers. And they are bought to the scene by the bridge where they encounter a drunken captain who is preparing yet another assault on the bridge that is being held by the confederates he's told they can't destroy the bridge because it is strategic importance and this is really where you get that sense of the futility of warfare the awful situation that these young men have been placed in where they are sacrificing wasting countless lives for what is little more than a landmark. 
Yeah, it speaks to the the pointlessness, the slaughter, the futility of the whole enterprise. And the captain obviously personifies that. And, and the music, again, sort of lends itself to the tragedy of all these men being put into this situation for no purpose, really. Exactly. So I love this whole section of the film. You could argue it is a complete diversion from the main plot. And on a film of three hours, you could say, well, just, you know, don't bother with it. But now nah, I love it because I, I think it gives it gives so much more weight to what's going on. And like I said, and like you said earlier, actually, you, perf- you put it perfectly. You could not escape the Civil War at this time. And so everything that these three men are doing has to be viewed in that context of what was going on in America at the time. And this part of the film, it's just brilliant. Yeah, you know, Tuco and uh, Blondie have no interest at being part of of this war, but twice have been dragged, dragged into it, much like many others. And yeah, it's like in terms of just an anti-war statement, the whole scene is perfectly pitched by Leone and the music absolutely adds to that. Yeah, 100%. So you've got the vocal part, which is really mournful. It's just the same tune as, as Marsha, obviously. But then you've also got a sort of constant bass note and marching drum underneath, which... Well, yeah, it just it, it creates the sense of foreboding. He, you've you've been told there's another assault coming. Dozens of men are about to pointlessly go to their deaths, and you get that sense of pointlessness with the tempo and the tone of this. It's yeah, great. Yeah, I've, I've, I mean, I've got I've got nothing nothing more to add other than to say that you know you talk about sort of what 60, 70 years later from this, um, mm-hmm. and the pointlessness of uh, men from different countries um, going out of trenches and legging it towards the other line for pointless slaughter and a huge number of deaths to capture a tiny amount of pointless land in Belgium. Well, frankly, it was just too much effort not to have a war. (laughs) Exactly. There was this entire plan that by everyone building up their military-industrial arsenal that uh, we could avoid having a war. There was just one problem with that plan. What was that? It was bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> Go and watch Blackadder Goes Forth. Yes, very much so. Right, so, yeah, we've just been talking about the futility of war and the poignance of the music highlighting that. And so let's pick things up by talking about Death of a Soldier, shall we, Kev? <laughs> I mean, this is this is one of our cheerier episodes, isn't it? <laughs> It's going to be a tough ask for me to pick some Twitter clips from this one. There's very few dick jokes that can be made about um, <laughs> about someone being tortured. Well, um, unless it's like uh, in Casino Royale, where the fucking Mads Mikkelsen keeps swinging that massive rope at oh, man. <laughs> Daniel Craig. Why do you have to bollocks? bring that in? <laughs> Oh, God, that's worse than Phil Bab going into the post. Oh, no. Oh, Kev, unnecessary. (laughs) Sorry, you brought Mads Mikkelsen um, swinging that massive rope into Daniel Craig's bollocks (laughs) repeatedly. Uh, And and there we go. I have a Twitter clip. Thanks very much. (laughs) (laughs) 
Right, okay, uh, so with such light-hearted gusto, we go on to Death of a Soldier. So, the aforementioned captain, he is mortally wounded within the battle. The medics take him back to his tent. Blondie is moved to give him one last drink before he dies. And then he and Tuco decide to carry out the man's dying wish and destroy the bridge and spare those lives. Oh, God, it's heartbreaking, this. I can't think of another word. I mean, what I, what I will say is that it's really beautiful the way it kind of leads on from the previous song. Mm-hmm. And it it, ha- it has a beauty and tragedy intertwined throughout it that speaks to the, I suppose, the beauty of Blondie's actions. Yeah. And also just the sheer tragedy of the, the, the ridiculous pointlessness of this battle. Well, exactly. I can't think of a better way to describe it than that, to be honest with you. I just want to say, though, again, we've touched on it already. You go back to 1966 and how brave it was of Sergio Leone to provide such a stark perspective on war. Okay, it's the Civil War, but, you know, it could be any war, really. The US are about to go off to Vietnam and pointlessly, you know, sacrifice tens of thousands of American lives. But to do that in a Western, you know, as I've said before, this isn't Gary Cooper riding into the sunset with Grace Kelly. This isn't yippee motherfuckers. It's a story of amoral men living through a time of brutality. And for 1966, that is highly commendable. Mm-hmm. Just having, yeah, as you say, having the the complexity of, of character is it even now would be a bit. I mean, obviously, we have grown into the era of the anti hero. Yes. But, you know, it, it certainly would be a bold choice now. Exactly that. I agree. Uh, so I just want to read a quote from Sergio Leone on his on his perspective on westerns and and his approach to making them. So first he says my films are basically silent. The dialogue just adds some weight, which I can see what he means there. The cowboy picture had got lost in psychology. The West was made by violent, uncomplicated men, and it is this strength and simplicity that I try to recapture in my pictures. Well, Sergio, I'd say you did a pretty bloody good job of doing that. Damn right. Okay, I mean, we've only got two tracks to go, and uh, I don't think there's going to be much we're going to say about these two. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, they're not. They're not particularly well known. These uh, these two bits of music. Okay, the penultimate track is the ecstasy of gold. I mean, you all know this. So Tuco has got free of Blondie's clutches. He has found the cemetery in which the gold is buried. By this time, he knows, or he thinks he knows, the grave in which the money is buried because as they were about to go and blow up the bridge, the two men shared their secrets with another. So he's looking for Arch Stanton's grave. And he's running around frantically, searching. And we said right at the start how the cinematography was choreographed alongside the music. You can see that here. You know, where he's running around and the camera just starts spinning round and round and round as the music breaks down and and the strings start picking back up again. It's, God, it's proper goosebumps, this. Proper hairs on the back of your neck stuff. Oh, yeah. It's brilliantly pitched. It's brilliantly paced. And we've talked earlier about 
vocal work of Edda wow. Deloso. Yeah. Fucking hell. Fucking hell is right. That is someone who can wail. Beautiful. It is absolutely fucking glorious. It is everything I love about Ennio Morricone's music. Yeah. You've got that slow start, so you've got the piano refrain, which you've heard a couple of times in other tracks, just mm-hmm. momentarily, but here it comes in. But then it just builds with that marching rhythm as well into just this anthemic, euphoric finale. Just wonderful. Yeah, the and you know, her vocals kind of speak to the the ecstasy yeah. that Tuco Tuco's because he thinks I'm gonna get the gold, I'm gonna get the gold. A, a very on the nose title for the track, but a fucking spot on as well. It's perfectly titled. Yeah, well, it it grows it grows increasingly frantic, you know, as he's legging it about the the graveyard. I do have. <laughs> I hope this doesn't ruin the song for you. So there is a sort of vocal effect within the within the song, you know, the wah wah. Yes, which I did make the note. Um, I don't know why they've um, sampled the sound of uh, the teacher from Charlie Brown. <laughs> Brilliant. (laughs) That had not occurred to me, but now, yes, I will never be able to listen to that without. (laughs) You bastard. (laughs) Uh, No, I was uh, just going to talk briefly about one of the five cover versions of The Ecstasy of Gold, if I may. I think I do know where you're going with this. So, on a 2007 compilation album entitled We All Love Aereo Morricone, The Ecstasy of Gold was covered by Metallica. Oh, God. (laughs) Once again, I performed the public service list by listening to it so you guys don't have to. I'd just like to move on, please. (laughs) Stop stealing our music. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Kev, it's just fucking well shit is what it is yeah. it's shit. because because that's exactly what i thought you were going to say <laughs> because at no part no point in my brain did i think do you know what the world needs the world needs a cover of a perfect piece of music by metallica <laughs> to be clear i don't mind metallica i, I do mind their version of the ecstasy of gold <laughs> mm-hmm. however i mind it a lot oi well, and then we go on to the final track, which is the trio. And... Wow. Yeah. So it's... Well, it, the scene, it's one of the most famous scenes in the history of cinema. It, it, and it's the ultimate Mexican standoff, surely. I mean, you don't even need to watch the film because pretty much every TV show, every, you know, loads of adverts, there's so many things that have mimicked aped copied yep. nicked bits of yep. of this mm-hmm. in order to show a tense scene with three protagonists in it mm-hmm. exactly every time that gentle flute part comes in i get excited mm-hmm. i get excited because i i'm instantly transported to that circular rock bed in the middle of this massive cemetery slowly backing away from each other slowly backing away from each other and so this is again the perfect dance of composer and cinematographer the music builds the tension builds with that wonderful again 
wonderful guitar from Bruno Battisti Di Mario. Mm-hmm. And the, the camera work is all shots of their eyes. And Eli Wallach, oh my God. Yeah. The shiftiest of shifty eyes. Des- <laughs> you know what I mean? It- well, it's perfect. The The cinematography of the eyes is perfect for the characters that they're... Yes. So Eli Wallach is proper shifty. Angel Eyes, um, Lee Van Cleef, is looks properly evil. <laughs> yeah, and you've also got Lee Van Cleef's twitchy hand, you know, down by his by his holster. It's just, mm-hmm. God, it's glorious. And then it is. It oh, the brass, oh, yeah. the brass. Yeah, it's just wonderful, isn't it? The way it just, like I said, it's euphoric. It's anthemic. Well, again, we've talked about the the music ra- ratcheting up the tension. That this absolutely does that perfectly. Hundred yes, percent. It, it's it builds to such an epic crescendo. It's perfect, perfect piece of music. Yeah, it it is perfect. And then right at the end, you just get a slight nod back to the music from a few dollars more, mm-hmm. with the little sort of um, xylophone bit. Yeah, it's great. I absolutely love it. The scene, there's no dialogue. It's all in the music yeah. and the cinematography here. And that's why I wanted to read that earlier quote by about Sergio Leone saying, basically, I make silent films. So, yeah, great stuff. Yeah, I, I've got nothing more to add. All right, well, we're done. Flown through them. We have flown through. Uh, should we do a couple of reviews? Sure. So, first thing I'll say is no Nobby this week or next week. As I've said before, he doesn't do soundtracks. So, uh, yeah, there you go. However, a couple of reasons I do have. So, for all music, Stephen MacDonald wrote a major influence on Western scores right into the 90s. Morricone's music utilises quite a remarkable array of musical tools. There's a traditional element of Western underscore with a brassy feel to it, just a bit. But this is joined throughout by thundering percussion that includes a lot of bells, various arrangements of voices, clanging acoustic and electric guitars, and even a prepared piano. Aside from the famous title track with Shadow's influences, I mean, that's a bit harsh, there's a lot here to recommend this particular score. There are moments of intense drama and incredible beauty that are rarely heard in motion picture underscore, giving the work a classical feel. I, I think that's spot on, apart from the Shadow's dig. Yeah, yeah there's no need to, to throw throw the Shadow's at them. No, absolutely. Literally throwing shade. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Thank you. Uh, okay, and then on soundtrack.net, their review says without question, Ennio Morricone's score to The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly is a masterpiece of film music. He strikes the perfect notes to give heart and soul to the otherwise ruthless action on the screen. There's simplicity and coolness to the main theme, making it instantly memorable. The score is a must have in any film score library. Cannot disagree. No, nor can I. Okay, little bit on legacy then. Uh, not loads again. There's not a, not a great deal, but um, well, in terms of legacy of the film, the initial critical reception of it in America was somewhat negative. So the New York Times critic Renata Adler wrote that the film must be the most expensive, pious, and repellent movie in the history of its particular genre. <laughs> Whereas Charles Champlin, no, seriously, that's the guy's name, Charles Champlin, (laughs) uh, in the LA Times, wrote, Temptation is hereby proved irresistible to call the good, the bad and the ugly, the bad, the dull and the interminable, only because it is. 
Ah, dear. Um, However, it has very, very much been reappraised since. And, well, someone we've spoken about very recently, Quentin Tarantino, he hailed it as the best directed film of all time, the greatest achievement in the history of cinema. Which, whilst I probably wouldn't go that far, uh, is not far off the money, to be fair. I mean, well, you can definitely see there's a bit of an influence on his work. Yes, indeed. That's Well, as we will go on to in a second... So the soundtrack stayed on the Billboard chart for over a year. It's now regarded as one of the greatest of all time, as we've seen. As you mentioned, it's been parodied and lifted countless times in popular culture. The Simpsons have used it. Even fucking SpongeBob SquarePants has lifted the score (laughs) from the good, the bad and the ugly. Morricone has rightly become seen as a legend in his field. So he worked again with Sergio Leone on Once Upon a Time in the West. We have spoken about that soundtrack before. A great soundtrack and a great film. Mm -hmm. He worked with the likes of Brian De Palma on The Untouchables. And his last major score, as you alluded to a second ago, was Tarantino. Uh, He did the score for The Hateful Eight uh, in 2016, for which he won an Academy Award. About bloody time. Well, absolutely right about bloody time sadly in july of 2020 he passed away aged 91 uh uh, well he he broke his femur during a fall and um as a result of those injuries he uh he sadly died i just want to for the very last thing i want to read another quote from that resistor magazine article that i've mentioned a couple of times and that is thus Leone's telegraphed emotional momentum, taken in hand with Morricone's visceral musical accompaniment, The Good, the Bad and the Ugly, became the film, along with its soundtrack, by which all other westerns are measured. Is right. Yeah, cannot disagree. All right, I've got nothing else on Legacy, though. No, neither do I. All right, Kev, what's your best song? What's your worst song? Christ, that's a a tough (laughs) one. Okay, I'm going to go... I'm going to go with the easiest choice, which is, well, my favourite as opposed to the best song because I think it's a brilliant soundtrack and it's really hard to find anything that's bad on there. So I'm going to go with the trio. I think Ecstasy of Gold is is an amazing... Like, there's loads of brilliant pieces of music on there. But as you said, you you mentioned before about Goosebumps, whenever I hear this piece of music, it does it instantly hairs on the back of the neck thing, mm. you know, there's so many disparate elements. I never get bored of listening to it. So without question, the trio is, is for me, the best piece of music on the album. Okay. And your worst? Worst? Oh, God, this is really hard. I'm going to come down on the story of a soldier for the simple reason that it brings to mind the scene. And okay, it's not actually that it's the worst piece of music on it. It's just that it instantly takes me to that scene. And it's harrowing. It's not, a, it's not a particular scene that I want uh, brought <laughs> no. to mind. No. Okay. So, uh, well, I'm going to do my worst first, uh, and I've got a different choice. And uh, I agree. There's, there is not a bad track on this soundtrack. Everyone's brilliant. I've got to pick one, though, so I'm going to go with The Carriage of the Spirits. And the only reason for that is it's a reprise of a tune we've heard earlier with The Strong. And it's just not quite got as much pathos as the first time you hear it in the film with the brass part that we mentioned. So that's all I can say, really. Uh, Best song. Yeah, it is tough. 
both the ecstasy of gold and the trio are absolutely phenomenal and are perfect examples of Morricone's music. And, well, I'm just going to read verbatim my note here. So I'll go for whichever one Kev doesn't choose. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't choose between them. Uh, I genuinely can't. I think they're both glorious. And so just to have a little bit of variety on the pod, I'm going to pick The Ecstasy of Gold as my best track. Fair enough. I can't, again, couldn't really disagree with that at all. All right, then. I think we're done. I think we are. So... Next week, you're doing The Godfather. I am. Before then, however, Kevin, how might people keep across what we're doing on the socials? So, I think you were probably looking forward to to these uh, these next week's uh, oh, yeah. Twitter Twitter ones. Because there's been so much. I've, God. I could have talked about Matt Letizia. I could have talked <laughs> about the Irish barista who, uh, gave, who ended up in hospital by holding farts in. <laughs> But I haven't. When on Twitter, you could... It's uh, about dandruff. It is. <laughs> you may uh, come across uh, possibly the worst excuse that anyone has ever come out with in the history of the world. <laughs> so a Conservative MP was photographed with, well, lines of a white powder, which he claims... Well, I will read verbatim his statement. Lines of a white powder... On a baking tray. (laughs) On a baking tray with a card next to it, and they were chopped out as though in lines. So what did he say about it, Kevin? So what he said was, I have for some years now relieved stress by brushing dandruff from my shoulders into a pile I keep in my kitchen. I accept this is uncommon, but it is not illegal. It's just a peculiar (laughs) habit, not so really different from biting your nails. That man has a serious problem with his scalp. Yeah, <laughs> seek help. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, on it. Like, I remember when my sister was about fifteen and came came back um, after <laughs> drinking and say. said the reason that she had vomited was because she'd had a really greasy pizza, <laughs> and that excuse was still better than an elected representative. Now, Kevin. We have no proof that no. he was utilising narcotic substances or doing anything underhand whatsoever. And we, we have must, not suggested as much. We No, we have not. We must take this fine, upstanding pillar of the community at his word, which is why we implore you, please seek medical help urgently because you must be in constant pain. Or, or just speak to, um, you know, Joe Hart or Joe McAteer. They can point <laughs> you in the direction of head and shoulders. No, or tea gel. That's for people with itchy, flaky scalps. Well, exactly, yeah. Or the one that's got caffeine in it that they, for some reason, have a Formula One car sound underneath, which I've no idea what it's called. You've lost me, mate. <laughs> Any, well, yeah, so clearly that advert's worked on both of us because you've never heard of it and I have no idea what it's called. So whilst people are concerning themselves with the dire medical condition of these elected representatives, or this elected representative, excuse me, what else can they do? Well, on Twitter, you could go to our great Twitter page, at Clash Album, and engage with the wonderful content uh, that's produced from there. If you like carefully curated quality content, you can go to our Insta, at Clash Album. Or if you want to sign us up for possibly one of those Sun Life uh, funeral pa- plans. 
Are they the ones that June Whitfield used to advertise? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although I saw an advert for one the other day, and I swear they had the worst actors I've ever seen in my life. Oh, really? I mean, those adverts have a low bar, but <laughs> Christ, like, honestly... One of the worst things I've ever seen. Anyway, you can sign us up at albumclash at gmail.com. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Yeah, keep in touch, guys. Let us know what you are enjoying. Let us know what you're not enjoying. I mean, the quality of our Instagram artwork has been quite remarkable of late. So kudos to the person, which is no longer Sam, Kevin, that, that does that. that is, you are responsible now for our carefully curated quality content. Although that's why it's sometimes late. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, leave your ratings, leave your reviews, all that jazz. Just remind people, Kev, what you're going to be taking us through next week to conclude this clash. Next week we will be doing the soundtrack to The Godfather. Brilliant. Until then, however, I have been Timothy. And I used to be Kev. And we will see you next time. Take care, guys. Ta-da. Ta-da.